Let's set the table. Hollywood, obviously, massive liberal bias for decades. Whatever liberal means now means a very different thing, yeah. you know, 20, 30 years ago. That's been turbocharged over the past five, 10 years with first feminism, then intersectionalism, then the Me Too movement and the whole Black Lives Matter race grievance movement. Uh, it's now, as you put it, a, a machine for woke distribution. It's one of the biggest amplifiers on the planet. Always yes. has been, but way more so now. One of the biggest amplifiers on the planet for the message, as Critical Drinker calls it. Yes, yes. When was the turning point <laughs> yeah, yeah. for when all that really kicked into high gear? And, you know, does this woke distribution network, does it need to be a deliberate conspiracy be between all the actors and all the film directors and all the studios or is it just more a conspiracy of consensus? Yeah, it's it's not a, con it's a conspiracy. It, we'll get into the, the... It's really interesting what is really driving this fundamentally. But you said, interestingly, there, the message. And I was actually, when I was doing my notes on this, that came up as well. That the thing is, when a studio executive, when they come up, the way they're educated, they essentially come from the agencies, right? UTA, CCA... These are the guys they negotiate with to get actors on. And from the mailroom up, they're trained. They write coverage. Coverage documents are these documents that are the readers. They start as readers in the agency. And on these documents, on the front of them, it's message. What's the message of this, right? So mm. they're trained to see that from the start. And so when they end up in the studios, and these people, say you make a movie. If they were just making good movies... What are you known for as an executive if you bankroll something? Because they work for corporations now, too. That's a really important point to note. Yeah. It's not the bigwig at the studio like Walt Disney who was able to just, okay, a bunch of European fairy tales. He's like a startup. He's like Elon Musk for movies back in the day, right? Mm. So he was responsible for that. But these guys work for a middle management machine. So the stuff they select is, da is dangerous for their careers. They spend all day saying no to things. The most dangerous thing they can say is yes, right? And so say that's just a good movie. Oh, cool, you bankrolled a good movie, but what does that mean for you? For you? But the message, right, as you, as you said, with the message, the way they're trained with that, that's what makes them important, isn't it? For legacy, right? Because mm. they're, they're the things they selected. And that, so that's one driving force there. And you see also the stuff that drives into it with writers, not doesn't necessarily mean that they're all on board with it, but they'll throw anything at a character if it means that it'll get noticed to be picked as an Emmy, right? You want to stand out. And so they'll, they'll chuckle those, those elements at a character for the sake of that. And you can see that fundamentally, that if you, when there was a story that recently came out about Netflix where uh, he was talking about on set, they were reading a script and... It was just in the script, right? They're doing a script read. And in reading that script, it had the N-word in it. And so the person that read it, read the script in the script read, and he was <laughs> fired that day, even yeah. though everyone around, even though everyone around said, oh, it was okay, we understand he's not doing it. But he's just read the script. Yeah. So ultimately, what's going on here? In the sense that the people all there, the middle managers, they're afraid of something. But what are they ultimately afraid of? There's no king that's, that's enacting this agenda that says do it. There's no king that's saying, ah, we're, we're putting on this agenda. These middle managers are all up and down the whole thing. They're afraid for their jobs. So ultimately, ultimately, when you think about this, when Alex Jones talks about demons, he's not exactly wrong in a way. <laughs> I know this sounds a bit, 
Oh, we're because... gonna get we're gonna get into that. Don't worry. I'll, yeah, we're I'll going get, there. Yeah, we'll we'll get there. I'll re- I'll read you a quote from the Joker director Todd Phillips, one of the handful of good movies that came out over the past few years. I mean, obviously, I'm very I'm very cynical and critical, but I reckon there's literally about one or two good movies worth watching that come out once or twice a year. But you know, we can get into that later. But this is what they one of them, the, the Joker. Uh, compared to The Batman, which was an absolute snore-fest. The depressed Batman, it was terrible, compared to yeah, The Joker. So Batman. the director of Todd Phillips, this is what he said about trying to make comedy movies in modern-day Hollywood, because he made a bunch of comedy movies before The Joker, or Joker, as it's called. He said, Go try to be funny nowadays with this woke culture. There were articles written about why comedies don't work anymore. I'll tell you why. Because all the fucking funny guys are like, fuck this shit, because I don't want to offend you. It's hard to argue with 30 no. million people on Twitter. You just can't do it right, so you just go, I'm out, I'm out. So they don't even get past that initial phase of even trying to in- introduce the potential of making a movie, as you mentioned, if it doesn't carry the message, because that is the purity filter which allows it to get made in the first place. And yet, Scott, we see mm. some examples... Top Gun being the biggest of them all over the past several years, I would say, you know, cracks a billion dollars worldwide within weeks. It refused to cater to woke narratives. It didn't even denounce woke narratives. It simply existed by not genuflecting Mm. to them, by not succumbing to diversity hires. And it ended up being wildly popular, I think, for not obviously the only reason it was a great film, but one of the reasons it was wildly popular was it concentrated on just being a good film its primary purpose was to entertain not to spread the message we've seen other films of the same time period that came out the toy story film for example and others that bent over backwards to become amplifiers for the message and they crashed and burned but you know non-woke movies the few that managed to squeak out are insanely popular generally they're very profitable at the box office so why are they still so rare if there is that financial incentive to go out and make them? I think they slip through the cracks, man. I think yeah. when you look at Top Gun, Tom Cruise is like an old hangover king from the old days who still has the power. And this it reminds me of when people say conservatives, when conservatives in Hollywood, right? If you are super famous, then you can be conservative. But if you're not, it's going to have a massive effect on your career. So it's kind of like that in the sense that if you have this hangover thing, you've got this heat, this heat which Hollywood's based on, that's still a commodity, and you still have the power. And think about Tom Cruise. He's surrounded by, he's surrounded by his, his wealth and this system of, of uh, Scientology, which, you know, it's protected. It's, it's uh, insulated from everything. And I think that, yeah, I, I think... In many ways, that old way of coming up is kind of dead as well with television. When you look at Christopher Nolan, these guys are kind of last of a generation. And, this, and, and same with uh, Quentin Tarantino. These guys came up. There's no real pathway to be... Great films are made by a dictator. They're made by a, gu- a, a person, that, a guy, <laughs> a person that has a, uh, a certain amount of clout. And you're, you're, you basically become a, a proven talent, right? And a proven talent, all that means is... It means that you are proven to make a shitload of money. It doesn't mean competence. But, of course, it usually amounts to competence. But when you are that, 
that's when you get checks to, to make movies. But the pathway up through that these days with Netflix and television is just not the same. They were lucky. Sundance used to be a road up for mm. these people, but those festivals were corrupted long ago as well. And they've been a part of the problem in terms of the mechanism. That mechanism selected for had this agenda in it as well. I, mean, I remember I got asked by a Sundance programmer, uh, why are all your, the people in your film white? I've got to ask this, right? So, and so they've been, and, and the same thing with the message happens in the film festivals is that all these people are looking for clout themselves. If they select a movie, it's about the filmmaker. They don't want that. They want it to be about them. So if they program a movie, it's the message that gets them clout. It gets them, oh, you picked that great movie. Otherwise, it doesn't, you know, because ultimately entertainment is kind of empty. If really, actors, it's playing pretend. It's not that significant. Yeah. But if you can put a message in it, if you can have that, you can say, look at us. We're great in our virtue. Look at us. Look what we did. Look how important this is. So a th- whole thing that's ultimately empty in its soul. And people that are ultimately em- empty, right? It is an empty place. LA is an empty place culturally as well. It's a decentralized empty place. It could fill it with this. So it was really ultimately a place that was perfect for this, this whole thing to be thrown at. So when these films slip through the cracks, though, like you say, I, I just say, yeah, it's going to be less and less each year. It's great when a good movie, I, I came to that conclusion long ago. It's great yeah. when a good one comes out. That's lovely. But don't think it's rescued anything. Some guy slipped through the crack. There's a guy called Robert Eggers. Uh, I think it's Robert Eggers. He made that The Witch and uh, The Northman. That's pretty good. Yeah. That's about Vikings oh, and such, and it has a... <laughs> the Northman. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Didn't have Vikings yeah, portrayed yeah. as African men. No, that's right. I mean, but you see that all over, of course, the absurd diverse, the diversity casting, which just pulls you out of it. Which is ultimately, though, it, that works in our favour. I suppose we might get into that at some point. But yeah, I wanted to ask you about that. You may... Yeah, I, want, I wanted to ask you about that and the. Um what you mentioned before about what, what you've been asked to include or not include. But on uh, on DMs before we set this up, you said to me that you actually love woke movies and propaganda. When <laughs> were you being facetious? <laughs> that sounds a bit counterintuitive. Explain what you meant by that. Well, I think ultimately what happens is when you do all this stuff is it makes their product inefficient. We can see with Star Wars, we can see with a Netflix slump, with the subscriber loss, with the Star Wars, they're trying to hide their profit loss. They merge two departments to try to hide their profit loss. We know that this makes it deeply inefficient, right? And you can see people are more than happy that they would rather they would rather go on YouTube and watch a storyteller now, just tell, like Count Dankula, tell mm. a story verbally than watch a Star Wars trilogy that vilifies their own values and virtues and vilifies them. In their millions, they'll watch stories. There's storytellers doing this right now. So the product, what they used to have as a benefit in production value by taking out the value hierarchy that is fundamental to the Anglo-Saxon world, to the American, English, Anglosphere world, by taking that stuff out, these fundamental values, it's sort of equalized it's to, the, to the point where people are willing to take a hit for the production value because they've taken that out of it by hitting the message so hard. It's made it viable for some, that benefit they would get basically is eliminated. So that's an opportunity for people who are willing or are to look deeply into fundamentally what makes us tick in our value hierarchy, which is within. It's, a, it's the being of a people, right? 
to understand that fundamentally. That's why it's an opportunity for the, for the people on the distant right, for the people in our spheres. And this is happening. This is not, this is not speculation. This is happening right now. So that's why I see it as a good thing, because these people, woke was always there. Like you said earlier, it was always there. Even before this wokeism, and this parasite took over everything, mm. this distributed cognition, it was always this, there. Uh, hyper agency took over everything. Yeah, and it, it, it was, was always, always a system. A it, it's actually better. It was the thing is, it was more nefarious before, wasn't it, Paul? It was more nefarious when it was just neoliberal because we didn't notice it as much. Yeah. Now, because they've hit it over the head so hard, all the general audience goes, "Hang on, this is." They weren't noticing it before, so it's working. Yeah. They were more effective before when it was more subtle, but now it's the mallet. So that's why I like it, that ultimately, because people are waking up to what was always sort of there in another form. It's revelation of the method, isn't it? And, you know, we've had, we've had legacy movies down the decades, which, again, as you, you touched upon this, they, they inoculate the public with universal values. They try to champion universal values based on common shared human experiences, trying to inspire humans to become something better. And it, it was a unifying experience when you go to the cinema and you watch those kind of landmark legacy movies down the years. And now mm. with Woke, it's all about division. It's all about elevating one ethnic minority or one fringe group above another. Mm. And there's no appeal to universal values. And I think that's why Hollywood has been hemorrhaging money over the past five, ten years. And as you said, the, the same with mm. Netflix. And again, the, the stuff that's good on Netflix tends to avoid all this as well. But... Still, there's that woke mind virus, as Elon Musk calls it, and as you call it, smacking people in the head with the mallet time and time again. Um, a few years back, I wrote a story about, <laughs> I don't know if this became more pre prevalent in Hollywood, but they created an AI software tool. And this was apparently used by major yeah. Hollywood studios that would scan yeah. movie and TV scripts and flag up any examples where diversity or the message, whatever you want to call it, is not portrayed positively. We've also had stories, and this is a fact, I don't know if this is prominent as it was in the early 2000s, but secret societies within Hollywood of conservatives who can't publicly admit that they don't hold these far-left political opinions. And then, as you said, the people who are allowed, basically, to slip through the cracks and make non-woke films are the people who are already successful who already had that gravitas. You see the same thing in the music industry. Only the most successful artists are allowed to break from the message to express semi-dissident beliefs. I mean, you can look at Morrissey as an example of that. Even someone like Noel Gallagher, who basically is a loose cannon and says whatever he wants because he's already had his success. You see that in Hollywood, in the movie industry as well, with you know people like Tom Cruise that you mentioned. Have you ever, in your career have in, had instances where you've been told you must push this political message, you must include this diversity narrative, or do you know, you know other people in the industry who have fallen foul of what has become this purity filter? It's more the editorial. It's more the fact that there's a the ticking committee, committee at Netflix, right? So it's like, say, with Q&A, the, the way they do it is simply by the fact of what they screen out. So the state mm. agencies, I've been in state agency meetings where I've had uh, basically feminist, uh, like, like a shortlisted meetings at state agencies for funding for films, um, where it's just between you and three other films, right? Um, 
I've had them say say to me in a meeting that, oh, you know where you know what's coming up is the uh, the gender matters program, right? Because we were two men in the room of this meeting with them and had nothing to do with this gender program they were bringing in, which is a social engineering program, by the way, to make films about with women in it. This is this is quite a while ago. This is 2017. And so they're saying that in the meeting. And ultimately, the person they gave the funding to never made the film, right? <laughs> never made the film and just took the money, right? <laughs> which, 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 so that's an example of, a, of a, a direct, like, why would you bother saying that in a meeting? Because we yeah. were both men and the film was all men and white men, right? Yeah. So I don't know how old anything against that. I made the film anyway, but that's one example of when I saw it. But the fact is, like I said, they do it through the screening, through the festivals, yeah. They, they present it as a meritocracy, and they don't do that anymore, by the way. They don't bother. They don't bother with hiding it as a meritocracy. Present it as a meritocracy, and then, of course, the people there that are screening and doing that sort of stuff are picking it for their own clout, for their own virtue. Oh, does this have the message? Because that'll make me look good, and I'll get the next festival and be the judge of that sort of thing, right? So this is how this distributed cognition, this hyper-agency, does its business, how it was so easy for it to sort of get in, this mind virus to get in. Ah, sweet. It was a perfect mechanism for it to do, to do its damage, right? And this is, when I say distributed cognition, this thing, cognitive scientists at the moment are talking about this as an egregore, as a they, egregore, they call it, or a hyper-agency, because it has no king, like we said earlier. It's a real organism, though. It's not it's a, if you think about it as a meme complex, if you want, if you're a materialist or whatnot, a meme complex that's between all the brains, a mind virus. But it feeds back. And we say you're talking to a woke person. Who are you really talking to if they're on message? You're talking to it, not the person, not yeah. the person right? So the, the most helpful way to think about it really is as this distributed cognition. And it's been talked about by cutting-edge cognitive scientists as this. So it's not wrong to think about it this way is what we're really fighting is something that isn't a mental organism, if you want to call it that. Yeah, and uh, if it has enough repeaters, enough amplification nodes, then it doesn't matter how true it is or not. If enough NPCs have got the yes. cogs whirring to amplify it across the board, then it reaches the virus spreads. Doesn't have to be true, doesn't have mm. to be you know morally upstanding to be something authentic or genuine. It's just the sheer amount of people that it infects that's how it grows that's how it mm. uh, metastasizes um it's more mm. specifically though why do we see all these comic book movie sequels i mean surely it's been done to death does it speak to this phenomenon that we've seen over the past 10 years the infantilization of adults the fact that you've got and i'm thinking of the crying star wars review guy legions of men with surrounded by Funko Pop collections, you know, they're in their late 30s, early mm. 40s, still transfixed by movies. When I was growing up, the comic book movies, these kind of superhero movies, they were almost specifically, largely, I would say, aimed at children. Now everyone's a child. Mm. <laughs> everyone's a child. Yeah. They don't even barely even yeah. need to make children's movies anymore. And... What is it with these comic book movies? I mean, is surely that is now dying a death. Yeah. I think that what ultimately motivates that is in men is a, a, a perverted deep need for religion. Mm. And so they're seeking it in a false mythos in this where it's promoted, it, I don't know, where they don't have to risk themselves. Because with religion, you have to sort of risk yourself by participating Whereas when you have it beamed into your room and you can just be a fan of this thing that's popular, 
you don't have to put yourself on the line. You don't have to enter a community. You just watch it and you present your, you present your, I don't know, you go, I guess you could go to cosplay or do whatever that, but it's not mm. real. You're not committing to a belief set, yet you deeply need and want it. So that's why I would say that these, it, it's, a, it's a perverted, distorted religious need. That's why these, these adolescents stay in this adolescent stage and fantasy fulfillment, a lot of it. But in terms of why do they keep doing it? Well, I mean, it's just a matter of this. It's again, this proven, it's like that proven talent thing I mentioned earlier. It's just a matter of the last thing a studio executive wants to do is say yes to a movie. And the last thing he wants to do is do something that's a risk. Movies are a shit investment. It's a bad, you know, and, you know, and, and independent producers are always looking for money. So that's the worst possible thing I could say. But, uh, but yeah, it's a bad investment. Yeah. And ultimately, it's led us where we are with this because it is a bad investment. But also on the conservative side, people might wonder why. Because Elon Musk recently tweeted about, oh, uh, we need a counter narrative. We need a, and retweeted this guy who was talking about their, oh, uh, yeah, conservatives need to put money into culture. Yes. Yeah. Elon, yes, we've been thinking about this. We've been, we've been doing this and working on this. The trouble is, though, is that conservatives for a long time, because they are by, by personality distribution naturally conservative, right? They yeah. expect a capital return, whereas on the left side of things, they're happy to dump money into culture and not expect a return. Yeah. Whereas that, I think that is slowly changing as they've realized how much we are at risk by these narratives, how much we are at risk by this sort of stuff. Yeah, I, I think that, they're definitely uh, slowly up. go go. Yeah, I don't think they're definitely upping their game. But you know, you mentioned it. Elon's talked about this need to create this genuine alternative narrative in culture. I mean, you can call it right wing, call it whatever you want. Obviously, the counterculture as it, the counterculture was the domain of the left. You could say in the sixties, the seventies, the eighties, maybe the early nineties. There's clearly no authentic counterculture. So surely there's a giant gaping vacuum for an authentic dissident mm. art and culture movement to sweep in and fill that gap. But we have like the Daily Wire, as you mentioned in our little chat before. They've got their own production house. They, they tend to, again, only to be able to rely on actors, actresses who have been, quote, cancelled. So they're fishing from a limited pool and... You know, does it end up just being a conveyor belt of cringe that actually turns people off to a right wing cultural movement? Because, you know, they do play it safe in the knowledge that I would say with a production house, an organization like The Daily Wire, they know that 70, 80 percent of their audience is Christian conservative boomers. And that's where their bread is buttered. Mm. That's how they're going to turn a profit on it. And if they engage with ideas with graphic images with language that will upset the sensibilities of that christian boomer demographic which mm. let's be honest a lot does then that might turn them off to whatever the daily wire is producing and isn't that where we get the problem of it being more of a a conveyor belt of cringe to be quite harsh but that's how i'd describe it no no it's true yeah I Oh, just lost my earphone for a second there. No, look, I agree with you. I mean, there's a lot of problems with this. One's it's a talent development problem. But I think with them, fundamentally, they are a multicultural network. And the audience they're catering to, are, it's a Christian. I mean, they believe that America is a creed, not a people. Whereas America yeah. fundamentally, and I'm talking about soul. It's, not, it's something you can acquire. That's fine. But America fundamentally is a Christian English people, really. And so if you've got a multicultural network, that's a problem because how are you curating what you're doing? And the second problem I have with them is 
the fact that these guys, a lot of them, they still seek the awards of the old system. They still want Oscars. They still want the New York Times to make them a bestseller. That's why Shapiro puts it on his front page. That's why he puts it on his Twitter, right? So they're mm. still in this. When I won uh, a Directors Guild Award, I realized when I won that, I thought, this thing's ultimately worthless. This is just a, it's just a status object. So when you get it, you realize it's just, oh, this just drove me in the system. It's part of a mechanism of enforcement in a way. And so if the message is involved, if the message is involved as it is with the New York Times, as it is with the Oscars, then this system of the thing that you wanted is enforcing you. And so I would say it's in, it is enforcing them, even though they're playing this counter narrative, they are not playing to fundamentally the, 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 the audience they're serving, they're not serving. Even if they will, they'll make a good movie every now and then, that's fine, or they'll bankroll it. And they don't necessarily made those movies that they recently put out. They just acquired them. They just, so when, oh, Daily Wire's new movie, they just bought it from someone else. But fundamentally, if you really want to get at this dissident right thing, you need to understand fundamentally what the, the value hierarchy is, which is in our being. It's not propositional. Whereas when you look at what woke people are doing, that's all top-down propaganda. That's all top-down enforcement from the propositional sphere. Proposition, it's, it's saying you directly in language what, what you are, but in your being, and it's all inauthentic, right? You, you talk a lot about authenticity. When you're deeply authentic, you're deeply expressing the being that is the people, which is English, right? Which is this value hierarchy. What that ultimately means, though, is the truth on the ground is expressed by the work. The being of the work is true to life. So when you look at what's a critical drinker talks a lot about what's a good story. Well, good. Good's a value judgment, right? So yeah, you can execute a story well, and plenty of people execute a story well, and they're not making money because it's been wokeified as well. So good ultimately means what aligns with this thing in our being. Good is what works on the ground. So say you imitate the procedure of a hero in a woke narrative. What happens? I imitate this in real life. What happens? It doesn't work. It's not reflecting the reality. And we see that when you look at a work, it needs to be probable, it needs to be plausible and authentic to, to being and applicable. Applicable, not like an allegory, right? Um, Tolkien talked about this, is that applicability so many people told him about his work that, oh, this is an allegory of World War I. He said, no. And millions of people would say it's about this, it's about that. No, that's top down. That's when you make propaganda. When you imbue yourself with Anglo-Saxonness, so it's a dangerous word to say, Anglo-Saxon. If you imbue yourself in the soul of Anglo-Saxonness, again, it's something that could be acquired, whatever. You imbue yourself with this and you work from that rather than top down with a theme and a message. When you work from that, it'll be naturally imbued in the work and will be applicable to situations. Whereas when you make an allegory, like say C.S. Lewis did with Lion, Witch of the Wardrobe, I think that was too heavy-handed, mm. is that he wanted to make it so people would, it was an allegory of the Christian narratives. People still liked it, but, but that is the problem. It's when you actively go in there and say, this is going to be this value. So that's the danger we need to avoid in the distant right and in the... In, in the our sphere of things is, is heavy-handed, propagandizing the other way. No, it's living a traditional life. It's living, imbuing yourself like Tolkien did, surrounded by it, in its truth, in its being. And then when you, it naturally comes out of you in, the, say, the first draft or whatever, and David Mamet talks about this as well, it comes out to you in the first draft, 
and theme, then you recognize what the theme might be because, oh, what's a moral of a story? It's the reason for the outcome. It's the reason for what happens to the hero, right? But you only discover that in retrospect. Mm. And, you, and you, go on the, you go on the hero's journey of the story yourself when you're writing it. So that's the mistake people make, these cringe Christian movies. Yeah. That's the mistake, is they go in trying to, oh, we're going to make this about heavy. Yeah. And, you know, I, I am Christian myself. And it comes off completely no inauthentic and defeats the object, right? Exactly. Yes. And so now, you, you have I to wanna... surround... Go, Sorry, go, go ahead, go ahead. I was just, no, I was just going to say, you have to surround yourself with it, be with its being. So when I say, though, that this is a competitive advantage to be able to do this and imbue yourself with these values, that is all else being equal. You still need craft and stuff on top of that. Mm. So that's what I'm trying to say is that you have to be able to, you have to be able to, uh, like Tolkien, you know, he was next to an Anglo-Saxon church. He walked down an Oxford path. He was deeply imbued with the work. But I mean, yeah, that's essentially all I have to say about that element of it. But yeah, you have to authentically be the thing you're making, not some degenerate Hollywood Tolkien, Lord of the Rings who just destroyed Lord of the Rings, right? And why did these bloody writers destroy Amazon series? Because they live in Hollywood, which is a complete place that's completely decentralized. It has no traditional culture. These guys are the exact type of people, I've met millions of them, that are just disconnected from true, authentic folk being. They don't have, it's a place of nowhere, LA, is a, people, the reason like why they ruined... Sorry, go. Exactly. It's an airport. That's mm. what the internationalism is. It's a, when you create a place, it's in order to do something else. It's a means to a means. It's, it has no traditional end, right? So that's why it ended up being what it was, is because the kind of people that turn up there uh, are transitory people. They don't dwell anywhere. And authentic being is something that dwells. I mean, you live in the... Uh, Cotswolds now, right? Yeah. That's a dwelling place of English being. It's a deep, mm. real place. It's been there for a thousand years. And that's the kind of being you need to really attach to. And there's places in America that are like that, right? To get into the authentic being of it. But anyway, yeah. I mean, Go yeah. <laughs> I mean, people need, people at the Daily Wire need to hear that message. And obviously, you know, there's such a huge vacuum for this and it's really not being filled. I've tried to do it in my own small way with what I do on YouTube. But again, you know, yeah. it's a massive mountain to climb and at least, you know, we can take a, stu a few steps forward on it knowing that that vacuum is there to be filled. But I want to get into the dark side, the Weinstein side of Hollywood, <laughs> the evil side of Hollywood, because we know it's been festering under the surface for quite a time now. And I think it works similar to how it works in the music industry. And I was contacted... I'll never forget this, by a big name, massive name in the music industry, was big in the early 2000s, a rapper. He was on Universal Records, had a couple of number one hits, did an album with them, big success. Then he was told, he told me all this, and it was him, I verified that it was him. He went into an intricate detail. He made the Thug Rap first album, then he told the label he wanted to make a more family-orientated you know, wholesome second album. They go to this party in Miami, which is full of these music industry bigwigs, and he's there along with this other rapper who also went on to be massive, bigger than him. And I'm not going to say the name because they'd probably end up suing me, but I know all the names. <laughs> so these two big rappers, both like at the start of their careers, 
go to this uh, music industry party in Miami. The two of them are approached by this top music director, who again is a household name. Basically, he says to them, I can only produce one rap video for one of you. I can't do both of you. I can't afford it or whatever. One of you is going to be a big star. One of you is going to claim this. One of you is going to go on and climb the mountain and become the big, you know, global megastar. At the same time that he's having this conversation with these two rappers, this weird group of homosexual men are both eyeing them up. (laughs) And it turns out that it was made very clear to both these rappers that whoever was prepared to go off into a different building at this party and perform homosexual favours for this group of music industry executives with this record label, they would get the big contract. They would be world famous. Now, obviously, my guy who told me about all this refused. The guy who did it went on, he he gladly obliged with the homosexual favours, he went on to be a massive star. If I said his name, everyone listening would have heard of him. Days later, the guy who emailed me gets a call from the label. They they say they're cancelling his contract. The other rapper, who basically agreed to be a rent boy, went on to go uh, double platinum two weeks later, and he went on to sell 10 million records in that short space of time. My guy was told he wasn't, quote, open-minded enough, whereas the other guy was. And again, he explained all this to me in intricate detail. People would know the names if I said them. We hear musicians all the time, Scott, saying, I sold my soul to the devil to get this fame, to get this contract, to get this money. We've seen all the Weinstein stuff come out. Have you heard of anything similar in Hollywood? How common is it for... We know what happened with Weinstein, but, you know, for actors, directors to compromise themselves sexually, both men and women, to be successful in Hollywood. How much of that degenerate, eyes wide shut stuff really goes on? Yeah. Well, especially at, uh, like, party events like that. I think what you've clued onto there is that the other, not just the women stuff, but the other degenerate, the homosexual stuff happens a lot. You hear a lot of stories about that. I don't have any uh, juicy stories about it, but yeah, it's a known thing. It's a known thing that goes on. Um, when you're in a position like that, and you, the thing about it is, is that the problem with it is 10 million people outside of it are these sort of slave orbiters who all want in and live in Los Angeles, right? So you've got a billion people willing to do what, what those people won't do. And they know that. So they know when you're at the party, the people are in this, it places people in a sense of desperation, especially because the machine as well as all, it's a corporate machine. And for the tech companies anyway, although it's not like what we're doing, what you're doing here, it's decentralized. But that, if you piss those people off, no one, no one person can completely say this idea that you go, oh, you'll never work in this town again. That's not true. They can know one person can ruin you, but still, it is a hierarchy in the sense that you, if you, you, there's only so many people you can piss off before your name is sort of tarnished and you can't. Mm -hmm. So that sort of intimidation works, but I imagine that has been toned down a lot. And there's lots of stories. There's there's that where people would go on to uh, do a show or whatever, and they'd be hired to do something, and a rich person would just like hit them on the on the genitals as they walk past, and because they're about to do their thing, they can't do anything, can they? They can't say anything. So yeah. it's this subtle power play from the people that have power. Um, 
and Kevin's you're in the limelight, what are you going to say? What are you going to say? Oh, that person just hit me in the, this guy just hit me in the, di- in the dick, right? You're not going to do that, are you? But um, yeah, so yes, that sort of stuff goes on. I've heard stories. I can't really tell any of them now, but. Anyway. Well, I mean, Corey, it was Corey Feldman, wasn't it? He came out a few years. In fact, this was during Me Too. It was during the whole Weinstein Me Too outrage and Corey Feldman came out. And this is why I think a lot of these child actors, one of the reasons they end up being really messed up, really fucked up is because they're in this environment. He came out and said, I can name six names, one of them who's still very powerful today, a story that links all the way up to a studio. It connects pedophilia to one of the major (laughs) studios. He's been talking about these Hollywood pedo rings for years. Wasn't the whole Weinstein thing a limited hangout? I mean, what these child actors are subjected to, why do they always end up so fucked up? Is it just their childhood has been stolen from Mm. them? They're not allowed to grow up naturally? Or is it more of this sordid kind of Weinstein stuff going on? Well, uh, it's also the place. It's a wilderness of mirrors. There's There's a saying where in L.A. you can get encouraged to death. Because no one, it's a place of face. No one wants to say anything negative to whatever your screenplay, your performance, whatever, whatever you say. And you see this a bit with Kanye as well, um, that uh, when you're surrounded by these handlers, it's, all, it's a yes man scenario. But it's mm. everyone because no one wants to see you make it. And they said that wrong thing to you because you could have helped them later. Right. So it's a, mm. everyone's it's a wilderness of mirrors where you're just reflected back to yourself. No one's telling you the truth. No one's authentic in that way. Unless you're really close to someone, they might tell you. So really, you have to, if you're a child and you come into that, people, everyone's saying yes to you. Uh, So that's one element of why these uh, child actors go insane. But of course, there's that other thing. God, when people have that that kind of influence and power, it attracts degenerates in its nature yeah. as well. <laughs> because it's a pla- LA is a place that has no central business district, really. It has a city, right? But it's, again, it has no traditional ground. It attracts the kind of people that are... And no offense, I've got friends there, right? So there are nice places in Los Angeles, but it is a hellhole. It is a hell. <laughs> Your videos about it are true. But truer than you know in the sense that it has no ground. It's a place of... Special interests, because they know it's a machine that distributes it across the world, um, but also decentralized cultures and ghettos, multicultural ghettos, but also power centers. This, this studio area, this studio area, it's not, like, it's not like a traditional city that has a main power center, the Westminster, whatever. Uh, this is the center, or the city of London's the center of power, whatever, right? Mm. It's not like that, because it's got all these different areas and different uh, industries, and because of the media industry. Um, it's a strange in that way. There's the aristocratic class, which are kind of the talent, which are those child celebrities. Then there's the crew, which are kind of this, which are the below the line crew are kind of like the servants. Sorry to all the underlying crew that I know and all that, but that, that's why it gets treated. That's why I don't like it in, in many ways. And then outside that, like I said, there's a million slave class people that want in. Yeah. So, yes, that sort of thing happens. Uh, Feldman, you know it's definitely happened, right? Because Corey Feldman's using it to get to get on TV. Yeah. He's using it like, I'll, I'll reveal the pedophilia if you let me do my song on Good Morning America. Yeah. <laughs> and he's yeah. obviously holding it over someone, right? Yeah. He's holding it over someone and they're saying, oh, I won't, if you let me, if you let me do my stupid song no, on this show and I won't reveal it. Child actors and what happens to them. Let's move on to a different topic now, though, because... 
Again, you told me you're, you're thinking of moving back to England maybe next year. You talk about the English way in your videos on your YouTube channel, mm. Scott Mannion. You talk about the English being brainwashed into thinking they're this multicultural melting pot and not a distinct people. Mm. Of course, we had the census results last week. It slipped by barely noticed by the media who were too busy obsessing about the fact that a black woman in full African dress had been asked where she was from by a white 83-year-old woman. That was apparently a bigger story. Uh, Less than 75% of the population of England and Wales is now white British. Our three biggest cities, Manchester, Birmingham, London, are all minority white British. On top of all the legal immigration, which is now a a million-plus in the last year alone, We've got illegal migrants arriving in boats, being treated like royalty. Guess the question is, you know, you know that do you know what you're coming back to and how do you feel about this massive demographic change that has happened over the past 30 years? Well, what I'm coming back to is a fight, man. It's and it's for the the fight is for the authentic being of the place. It's not so much about look we can talk about race or whatever, but I'm talking about a soul, the fundamental soul of it. That's what they're trying to kill by doing this. I think it's not incompetence. It's not incompetence by the government. They know it's, it's malice now. How long have all these people on the news that say, oh, they're just so incompetent with it? No, they're competent. How, they, they're competent. The border force seems so competent to be able to tow boats into the harbor to rescue people. The whole machine's competent. Believe, like, look at that. The way that it operates. They're competent enough to purchase all the hotels around the nation to be able to... They literally communicate with the criminal people smugglers to bring the boats in, and then it's chaperone red carpet service. Yeah, they got all the hotels lined up. That's a very efficient system, isn't it? They're not incompetent. It's malice, and people need to realize this now. It keeps getting pushed on GB News, and I love it. I love it. It's an alternate source and all that. Great, Nigel Farage should be... Buried in Westminster one day when he goes. He's a true hero. But it's malice, man. And the the sooner we recognize that, the better. Because what I talk about is a fundamental authentic being, which is still in us now, right? It's just covered by inauthentic fake values that they promote. Fake values on top, propositional ones. But authentically, underneath, what constitutes us fundamentally is our... It's essentially a personality of our greatest heroes, like a pantheon, right? That, generationally, it's sort of inherited in the childhood development stage. That's the soul I'm talking about. That's what recognized Tommy Robinson. That fundamental value hierarchy, which is of our greatest heroes, Robin Hood, King Arthur, Nelson, right? That imitated father to son. That recognizes, right? That recognizes this pattern of behavior in someone like Tommy Robinson. What behavior is Tommy Robinson embodying? Robin Hood, the state sheriff, is tyrannizing him. He's a populist uprising. He reveals the truth. That's what Robin Hood does, right? All this, it's the exact same pattern. So what happens is this cycle plays out and in us, we sense it and we admire that person. Think about it. Why do you admire Tom? I admire Tommy. I admire you. I admire um, Nigel Farage, what he's doing. This is a populist selection of a hero. But what's supposed to happen in that is the king recognizes it and lifts those person up. And brings them into the hierarchy to lead the place, right? Because they've recognized the tyranny that's uprise. But fundamentally, what I'm talking about is this soul. That's what voted Brexit. <clears throat> it recognizes these patterns underneath the inauthentic, inauthenticity. This soul recognizes those 
patterns. I mean, think about it, Paul. When you admire someone, why does that happen? Something they're doing triggers something in you. What it's is that an archetype? As he said, it, it's an authentic, innate archetype which you're born with and you grow up with. And even doesn't matter how much they vilify these authentic archetypes, populism, whatever you want to call it, keeps on rising. They still voted for Brexit. You know, Winston Churchill, whatever you disagree or agree with what he did, he's another authentic British archetype, which now they're trying to vilify to an increasingly greater degree. But it's not working, is it? People are still fundamentally mm. connecting with these authentic archetypes whenever they crop up in the culture, like Tommy Robinson, like other people. Yes. And the more heavy handed they are, the better. The more heavy handed, the more people realize what? Because they can gain these these archetypes, right? A proposition or description of one of them might be an Englishman must always overcome tyranny. It's a, it's a moral impulsion. That must just means it's automatic, right? It's just a feeling that impels you to do it. They, what, what this parasite does, for instance, is gain that into fake tyrannies. So you, you, the Englishman goes, ah, there's a tyranny here, but it's a fake one. So when they're more heavy-handed, it gives that, that, uh, the being a chance to see that all this stuff is BS. And we, you reveal that when you do videos and criticize it. So the authentic being can recognize it in the right people. And it does so uh, when you see, a, especially when it's a personality. But that's why they're doing this, re the replacement, because... They're not giving us time to, to, I mean, you need to have a really, really slow immigration to be able to assimilate people into this soul. It's a generational thing, right? It can, yeah. could be done, but that's why they're doing it. So it's not too late if we can articulate what this, these things are. People respond, man. In the videos that I do, you should see the comments about this stuff. The people recognize the authentic being when it's articulated in a story, when it's compared to someone like Tommy Robinson, when it's compared to their genuine, authentic English behaviors. And this applies to Americans too. They recognize, yes, I see, because it's their propositional mind that might have been confused by the government. But well, that's the procedural. I'm constantly amazed, Sorry, Scott, yeah. by, you know, from my perspective, I'm, I'm merely just enunciating what I see as the truth in YouTube videos. And then many people in the comments and the responses are like, Paul, you're so brave. We love you. This is amazing. And from my perspective, I'm just pointing out the truth. But that's what it is, isn't it? It's, it's them shedding the fear of noticing, recognizing, embracing someone else, articulating it and giving them a, a platform, an outlet, a steam valve to express their authenticity as well. That's what it's all about, right? Yeah, and I think that in a world of lies, the truth is a revolution. This is the high fidelity that we've been talking about. It gives it a higher fidelity. The mm. same as with values, it's the same as truth. So you blow up because you're telling the truth. It's like when you step across the line, when you tell the truth, and even in many ways, that's what Kanye's doing. And whatever you think about what he's doing, he's a, the jester. He's revealing, he's revealing a truth. Uh, Christ, I would say, I'm Christian, so I would say, yes, that's, that's what he's revealing, the truth of Christ, ultimately. And the fool does that. Uh, you know, let him do what he's doing. But Well, Elon, Elon talks about point, free though. speech absolutism. What Kanye said is free speech absolutism, yeah. whether you agree with it or not. He's, he's basically test, testing the boundaries of Elon Musk's stated principle. So, you know, we'll, we'll see how that plays off in the long term. But I wanted to ask you about, before we close out here, you said you worked in advertising. That's now where they're pushing the message more than anything. 
It's not in the news programs. It's a little bit in the soap operas. It's in the movies. But I see more of it in the actual advertisements, whether that be... I saw an advertisement the other day for Pampers, diapers, nappies. And again, it it was the mother cradling her own baby wearing a face mask in the hospital. We see the Christmas ads, uh, mixed race families, mixed race couples, even though that's very rare still in England, six to seven percent are in those mixed race relationships. So it's it can't be about pandering to as many demographics as possible to try and sell as many uh, products as possible. It must be deliberate social engineering to, to some degree. But then people will come back on that and say, well, the the writers, the directors of, you know, Aldi Christmas commercials, they're not deliberately yeah. socially brainwashing the people to accept this. They're not doing that. How is it done? Do you think it's deliberate? Do you think it's just some surface level generic thing where they're trying to appeal to as many demographics as possible? Or is it more malevolent it's, than that in these advertisements? It's sort of neither and both of those things because at least this is how it started, right? What the media and what advertising is addicted to is first is really popular to get coverage. We're the first to do A. We're the first to do B. So plug into that. We're the first black female. You see what I mean? So this began as a, it's cheap advertising. If you can throw the message into something and that's, Again, this is how the studios sort of also, this drove a lot of the marketing for the studio stuff as well, say uh, Black Panther or whatever. Um, that as an activism movie, do you know how much free press that is? You oh, don't yeah. have to pay for? How many articles? And the, I mean, these people are easily bought. Um, but the fact that they can save money doing that, that's, it's, it's just a method of doing that. It's a method. But that's changing. Because the more you push this out, the more people get on board with the message. So how long can we think it's just a, this is how this distributed cognition, this, this hyper-agency has used our weaknesses, our degeneracy of this, the neoliberal world to take possession of the apparatus, which had its own, had its own being, had its own hyper-agency, which was just a sort of degenerate, <laughs> different type of a sort of breaking apartness, a stepping mm. backness. But that's that's ultimately what drove it to begin with. But now I think a lot of people probably bought into it. And so also in these companies, in HR departments, they've taken over everything, right? So I think, I don't know, you, you'd have to guess at what the percentage is of people that tr- are true believers, what the percentage are that are just enforced and don't speak about in public, and, th- and what the percentage are that are like us that are sort of trying to stop not doing it within the institutions. But... I mean, I feel for people that are of our temperament that work in these. I don't think they should. I, and I also don't think people that they should rush out and say, ah, I'm this because I don't want them to get fired. Yeah. If we all stood up against this, we would defeat it. But no, I, that's probably not going to happen at all at once either. So if they can deal with it, if they can deal with being buried in the FBI, if they can deal with being buried in all these places. Stay there because they can help us from the inside. Right. Don't destroy your life doing it. But. At the same time, donate to things and find ways, perhaps, of getting out of that hierarchy uh, into a system where you can be more rewarded. And that's where the parallel economy comes in. That's, this is possible now. That's in many ways why I don't love this Twitter thing, because it's pulling people back together. But you want a parallel system where you have to earn money with this art. You have to earn, be able to find a way to, to earn and to have people ent- entering these industries and dissident media and whatnot. There has to be a system where 
people can get rewarded to train the talent and do all that stuff and alternate advertising as well. Um, but yeah, that, that'd be my answer to that. What, what I think about. Yeah. All right, Scott. Well, we've, we've done nearly an hour and it's been fascinating, but in closing, I just wanted you to give you the chance to tell people what you do on your YouTube channel for one. And then what are your plans for the immediate future? And just tell people how they can find you online. Well, look, dude, thanks for having me on. I just want to say that because I think at the moment we need to promote dissident talent because what's happening is gatekeepers, like Daily Wire, are gatekeepers in the sense that they're keeping out people. They get to a certain level and they're not lifting people up, right? But the system's designed in a way that YouTube, you can't come up the way these sort of people did anymore. It's the, these words are filtered out. So, but fundamentally, what I do is that I articulate what our fundamental value hierarchy is so the Englishman, so the American too, can understand fundamentally and reconnect their propositional ideas with their fundamental being using our greatest heroes, using our greatest stories, right? Because we've got this public domain from all the Victorian age where our greatest writers, all these people wrote and extremely talented people, that's all copyright free, right? Mm. So if you can articulate what these things are in video and articulate what our ultimate being is, I, it, the proof's in the pudding. Doing this work uh, is very rewarding, right? It's a duty. It's so much higher than just making a individualistic art for your own good. It's making a work authentically true for something higher, for our people to understand their being. And people comment that. People say about this stuff that it's as if I'm telling them something they always knew but couldn't put into words. Yeah. And so what that tells me is that it's aligning their procedural understanding of their being that they've imitated from their father that is deep in them and aligning with their ideas of what they are because they've been confused by media and centralized propaganda. We weren't supposed to be centralized in media. The movies are bad in many ways. We used to all across England. We used to all participate in plays of Robin Hood. The church used to pay for them, right? We used to imitate them ourselves. as a village, everyone across the place. We're supposed to participate in plays, not watch some actor as a slave on a media. So in many ways, what I used to do or what I do is bad because it's centralized in a way. But people want to participate in their story and be actively in the narrative of England and fundamentally their people. So that's what I try to do. I try to articulate what that is and offer practices that we can mine from our greatest works and heroes that people can use in their lives. Psychotechnology, I call it. It's because we've been taken, our rituals and tradition have been taken away from us by this machine. And so it's, we're coming home now, coming back to the village, like you and the Cotswolds, man. It's like coming back to what is the true being of England. You know? <laughs> yeah. That's essentially what it, what it is. And it's yeah. important. It's important we do this now before it's too late, before you're not allowed to say Anglo-Saxon anymore, before you're not allowed to have fraternal organizations and men gather together to do this sort of thing, before it's illegal to do that. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's it, essentially. So if you're interested in that, check it out. Uh, Scott, uh, go to greenwood.media. It has all the links on my YouTube. But uh, yeah, anyway, that's about it, man. <laughs> Thanks for having me on. fascinating stuff, it. Scott. And um, I'm going to put some of the highlights of this up on YouTube, obviously, and, and try and direct people to your channel because it's fascinating stuff. More people should subscribe and, you know, really, really, you know, take in that kind of content and embrace that authentic, true being that you speak about in your videos. Uh, that's going to wrap it up, though, Scott. I'm going to be talking to you soon for a different thing. So uh, that's going to be exciting, yeah. too. But 
That's going to wrap it up for this podcast. Scott Mannion, thanks for joining us today. Thank you.